Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 23rd, 2022, and we've been doing so many shows recently about the problems, perhaps even the crisis of America and of American democracy. Did a show last week by, uh, with Phil Clay, um, an American soldier, about rebuilding. This theme of building and rebuilding is uh, uh, a popular metaphor for thinking about America. He believes that we need to rebuild um, the American citizen. Uh, he lays that out in his new book, Uncertain Ground, Citizenship in an Age of Endless Invisible War. That war is, of course, a military one, but also perhaps a, a deeper one. Um, we've done many shows about the legacy of the Trump regime. Last week, we had Mark Esper, the former minister, um, secretary of defense in the Trump regime. He has a new book out, A Sacred Oath, which he he maintains is the core of thinking about public service uh, in, a, in, a, in an America where uh, democracy is less and less respected in a more and more divided America. We did a show last week also with the great political theorist Francis Fukuyama about whether or not we're at the end of liberalism um, and the relationship in America between liberalism and democracy. He has a new book out, Liberalism and Its Discontent. So my old friend Yasha Munk was on the show a couple of weeks ago on the paradoxes of American patriotism in a multicultural America. He has a new book out, The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. Um, all this, I think, sets the stage for our conversation today with another book out about rebuilding or building and about uh, the diversity of democracy in, in America uh, with, uh, with the Chicago-based uh, writer, and political activist, Ibu uh, Patel. He has a new book out, just came out two weeks ago. We Need to Build, Field Notes for Diverse Democracy. And I'm thrilled that Ibu is joining us from the great city of Chicago in Illinois. Uh, Ibu, building or rebuilding? When you say we need to build, shouldn't the title of your book be We Need to Rebuild? Uh, sure. It could be we need to rebuild. It has a little bit less of a ring to it. Um, but really, what uh, I love that you had uh, Yasha Monk on. Uh, he's a friend, and he and I just spoke together for the Chicago Humanities Festival. Yeah, I saw that. It was interesting. And in and our books are very similar. In a lot of ways, his book is about the political and policy frameworks of a diverse democracy. And my book is about the civic frameworks. It's about what uh, uh, ordinary citizens can do both in, in terms of just participating in a positive pluralism, but also in building the institutions of a positive pluralism. And, you know, that's what I've done for the last 20 some years in building this organization called Interfaith America. And the big idea here is, is how do you make sure that the world's most religiously diverse nation, uh, the most, uh, the world's first attempted religiously diverse democracy, which is the United States of America, how do you make sure that faith is a bridge of cooperation and not a barrier of division or a bludgeon of domination? And the book is really about how we think of that in, in a large scale. What 
what are the institutions necessary for a positive pluralism, a society in which people respect each other's diverse identities, relate positively across difference, and cooperate in a common life together. And my contributions to that include the book we need to build, uh, and it includes this institution that I've been a part of building for the last 20 years. Uh, Ibu, talk to me a little bit about religion itself. America, of course, is a colonial society founded by religious people. It's always been defined one way or the other by different religious communities. Is there something about America that makes it a, a more or less religious country than other countries around the world? Right. Um, well, you know, G.K. Chesterton, uh, uh, the great uh, British writer, said that America is a nation with the soul of a church. He says this a uh, hundred or so years ago. And actually now America is a nation with the soul of a church, and a sangha, and a masjid, and a gurdwara, and a temple, and a synagogue, and a secular humanist society. We've become the most religiously diverse nation in, in human history. And I think one of the most remarkable things about the United States is that something like 50% of our civil society, meaning uh, our social service organizations, our refugee resettlement agencies, our athletic leagues, our hospitals, our colleges, our private schools, these are built by particular religious communities, Methodists, Catholics, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, and they serve everybody. So for much of human history, when a particular identity community builds an institution, it is to propagate its own identity community. And oftentimes it cultivates tension and engages in conflict with different identity communities. In the United States, we have a positive pluralism, I think largely because you have a set of civic institutions, Notre Dame University, Methodist Hospital, the Inner City Muslim Action Network that are built by particular identities, which means people have the freedom to express their identity as Muslims, as Jews, as Buddhists, as Baha'is, but not in a way that is cultivating tension, rather in a way that is cooperating and serving everybody. I obviously want to see more of that. Right, I, be, I, I mean, let me jump in here, Ibiza. I mean, where have you been the last 25 or 50 years? America is the least tolerant country I think I've ever experienced in my life. Uh, these religious communities may be tolerant to people within their own faith, but I see very little evidence of what you're talking about. You're talking to me from Chicago. What are you seeing in Chicago that perhaps many other people in the world, uh, in America, aren't seeing? And I'm a little bit surprised that you say that. Um, you know, we're, we're living at a time right now when there's outright pogroms against Muslims in India. We're living at a time in which the fire departments in Mostar, in the nation of Bosnia-Herzegovina, uh, they will not respond to fires that happen from different religious or ethnic groups. There is a Muslim fire department in Mostar, and it does not respond to fires that happen on the Catholic side of town. And the United States, I am not saying that this is perfect. I'm saying that there, there is a positive base from which to progress from, right? That's so, a fair well, point. Uh, I, I take your point. And of and course, we could talk about, you know, when I, when I talk to um, Yasha, I think he's probably slightly less optimistic than you, and maybe he's coming in as an academic and as a political philosopher slightly differently. But we talked about the Lebanese model. Does... Lebanon may or may not be a democracy. It may or may not be particularly tolerant. But 
Are you fearful of a, a Lebanese scenario in America where everything gets fragmented into a religious kind of sectarianism? Tom Friedman sure is. Um, I am, I am frankly afraid, Andrew, of the kind of sentiment that you expressed three minutes ago, which is uh, a, se a sense of inevitability about uh, about conflict. And I constantly want to say that if you compare the United States to heaven, we don't look that great. If you compare the United States to other ways of organizing 330 million diverse people, we're doing reasonably well and we can do better. And so, you know, Yasha and I talk a little, uh, talk to each other about being optimists. And part of the reason I'm optimistic is because I wake up every day able to do something, able to make a contribution. And Andrew, 50% of the world lives on less than $6 a day, right? There are people in, uh, you could wake up and, and have been born uh, uh, in the eastern part of Ukraine. You could have been born a Russian Okay, state. so I take that point. Sure, I just did a, a show actually with a, a man who was born in Ghana who nearly died many times migrating to Spain. So I, I take your point. Um, but... Let's talk more specifically about America. You have a country in which one of the two major political parties seem very, very hostile. I think to the the multi ethnic democracy that you're 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 in favor of. How would you respond to that? I would say that those of us uh, in the other political party, of which I am one, should prepare ourselves to lead, to be able to present a positive hopeful vision of what American pluralism can be. My metaphor for that is that we are a potluck nation, not a melting pot, and we should be prepared to build effective, inclusive institutions. And we should hope that one day the Republican Party returns to uh, uh, its original roots in Abraham Lincoln in the uh, a nation of freedom and a nation of cooperation. So my whole point here, Andrew, is not that this nation is perfect. It's that we get to make a contribution which moves it along the line towards something better. And, well, honestly, and, I, and I take that point. Okay, so it's not a perfect nation. No one ever claimed it was or should be or could be apart from perhaps its religious founders. But um, how are you going to get Americans to begin talking to one another again? I mean, this is a theme that we've 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 talked about so many times uh, on the show, we had um, one very interesting uh, young journalist, Monica Guzman. I'm not sure if you're familiar with her work. She has a I new book. I actually do know out. Monica. Yes. Uh, I never thought of it that way. She's involved with a group called Braver Angels, which is getting people of different political faiths to talk to one another. Um, is your group uh, Interfaith America? Is it similar to Braver Angels in a in a, in a theological sense, in an ecclesiastic sense? What is the point of interfaith America? So uh, not in a theological or ecclesiastical sense, but in a broad sense of uh, the civic understanding of America's diverse democracy. So Monica and I know each other, we trade emails and, and texts. And, you know, one of the things that we talk about is diversity is not just the differences you like. And the way to make a diverse democracy work is to be able to create spaces where people of different identities and divergent ideologies are able to cooperate. And 
in American hospitals, on American campuses, in American athletic leagues, uh, in American civil society, we largely do that. I want to recognize that genius and I want to strengthen and expand it, right? And so we are similar to Braver Angels in a vision of American democracy as a place where people from diverse identities are able to disagree on some fundamental things and still work together on other fundamental things. What's gone wrong with America and not just perhaps with America, with the world in terms of citizenship? We did a show last uh, last month with John Alexander. He has an interesting book out on citizenship, suggesting that we, we, we think of ourselves too much as consumers rather than citizens. Is the problem in part, at least, Ibu, with contemporary capitalism? Is that the thing we need to reform? Look, I think at a macro level, we are going through uh, a once uh, a once in two or three hundred year economic shift from an industrial economy to a, a knowledge and tech, uh, technical economy. Right, so we experienced this in the late nineteenth century. That's a massive shift. We're going through a communications revolution, which is the which is a part of that economic shift, and we're going through something that is feels like the bubonic plague. Right. And so there's just these massive macro level shifts that are taking place and all that is solid is melting into, into air. You have to expect some degree of disruption at the civic level. So let, let's first say that. I think a second thing is that there's a lot that's taken for granted these days, right? So, so, uh, 70 years ago, people did not take refrigeration or indoor plumbing for granted today. We do. I would prefer to wake up and say to myself, you know what, I am so much better off than the vast majority of the world and so much better off than the vast majority of people in human history. I want to embrace my privilege and do what I can to make a contribution. But that is not the standard narrative that's given. That's not the standard narrative that's given. I would, uh, I part of the ethic of this book is to say, it, is a responsibility to be an optimist making a concrete contribution. It's a responsibility, right? The story we tell ourselves and each other about what the world can be will determine at any given time what human beings will do. If we tell a dark story of conflict, you can expect people to begin to move into that frame. If we tell a hopeful story of cooperation, it inches the world forward in positive ways. Is there anyone doing that now at a political level? You were very much involved with Obama. I think you were one of his advisors. Uh, you're both from the great city of Chicago. Is there anyone who can who can pick up that Obama mantle and and and, I mean, and, I re and rekindle the this the optimism that you're trying to articulate and we need to build? You know, I have, a, I have a chapter in the book called The Obama Story and The Trump Story, and I contrast these two stories. And, and one of the things I highlight about Obama is that Barack Obama was always Barack Obama. And what I mean by that is that here's an individual who got trounced in a congressional race by 30-some points in the year 2000. And he was giving his red states and blue states stump speech back then. And the nation 
wasn't ready for it or his congressional district wasn't interested in it, right? And a couple of years later, and I happened to be in Chicago at the time watching his rise. I went to a fundraiser for him that had maybe 40 people there, right? We wrote a $25 check and got a handwritten thank you note. Uh, my wife is a civil rights attorney. I hope you got that note on the wall, man. I, I, I actually should have kept it. But, you know, here was a guy who was running third in the Democratic primary for Senate, the longest of long shots, right? We had nothing else to do that evening, so my wife and I went. It, the point that I'm making is a person who ends up as the most powerful individual in the world and and you know still amongst the most popular political figures in the in the entire world was next to nobody just a few years before. And he was preaching a message of pluralism. He was preaching a message of hope. He was preaching a message a message of cooperation. And the nation wasn't ready for it. And then all of a sudden it was. And so I think that Obama is a once in a century type of figure. Uh, um, but cultural winds shift. We are going through a very ugly period right now in terms of the, the cultural climate. I think that continuing to tell stories of a hopeful pluralism, of interfaith America, of a potluck nation, and importantly, building the institutions that instantiate that vision. You can't just tell the story. You have to build the schools and the hospitals and the athletic leagues and the social services centers that actually make it real on the ground, right? You have to do those things. All of a sudden, you know, uh, things may shift and people may start seeing themselves into this new frame. What can we learn from history, um, Ibu? I know that the book is, is full of examples of historical figures who you found very inspiring, who, may, who, who, who might provide us a, a signpost for the future too. Who in particular should we rethink or reread? You know, one of the uh, uh, historical figures that I write about is a, uh, a man named Bob Moses, who was one of the great uh, leaders of the civil rights movement. Uh, he would picket outside of segregated grocery stores on his own in the Deep South in the 1960s. And after he helped tear down the evil system of segregation, uh, he was doing a PhD at Harvard, and he uh, this is in the 1990s, and he notices that poor minority kids are too often shunted into second class, uh, uh, um, uh, lower track math courses. And he develops a way of teaching these kids that elevates their, their math abilities and math scores. And he calls it the algebra project. And I present that as precisely the kind of work we need to do today. We need to make sure that uh, institutions that are racist, that are exclusive, no longer function, right? But you can't just tear things down. The goal of social change is not a more ferocious revolution. The goal is a more beautiful social order. And Bob Moses builds one of the institutions of a more beautiful social order, which is a better way to teach math, which is to say a better way to elevate the economic citizenship of entire classes of people. I write about Muhammad Yunus. I write about Jeffrey Canada. I write about partners in health. I write about Jane Addams, who I think is the signature hero of this kind of work, which is to say, you build a civic institution that solves concrete problems and that tells a different story of what the nation can be. What do you make of new conservatives? I had Rod Dreher on the show. Uh, who um, 
I, again, I want to pick on the guy, but he's he's not here to defend himself. But um, he seems to me an example of someone who wants to make religious faith central to one's identity, both spiritually and politically. But it's a, an identity that is the reverse of yours. It's not a bridge. It's in, in many ways exclusionary. Are you worried? I'm sure you are about some of these new religious movements, which are more exclusive rather than inclusive in thinking about an, a 21st century America? Well, Rod Dreher would say he's not a part of a new religious movement, but a very old one. Listen, there are many forms of evangelicalism and orthodoxy that are entirely, uh, that, that, that dovetail positively with pluralism. So the writings of a David French, a John Anazu, a Russell Moore, a Shirley Hoekstra, I might certainly have differences with these people on some partisan matters, and yet I greatly appreciate their articulation of pluralism. Uh, and the same would be said for people within my own faith tradition of Islam. There are there are Orthodox believers uh, who are very much strong proponents of pluralism. Sheikh Hamza Youssef, um, the founder and president of Zaytuna College, would be one of them. So, I, I this is not principally about. Uh, Orthodox religious believers bad. It just depends which. Are you pro-pluralism? Are you interested in your faith being a bridge of cooperation? Are you willing to live positively alongside other people in a mutually enriching kind of way? That's. I think that's the heart of a, the American project. It's the heart of uh, diverse democracy and and um, uh, liberal uh, kind of the liberal philosophical proposition of free societies. I think that that's enormously important. It's also very, very, very difficult. Uh, and one of the things Yasha and I talk about, for example, is this is the first time that it's been attempted in human history, right? This is fragile. We need to constantly build the muscles of American pluralism. Are you um, concerned uh, with, I mean, obviously you're not a great fan of the political right of Trump, or people like Rod Dreher. But are you concerned with the way in which sections of the American left of progressive is of progressives have fallen into this almost obsession with racial, sexual, and perhaps even religious identity? Do we need to get beyond the woke? And I, I use that word carefully because not everyone even likes the word. Are, are you a critic of, of, of wokeness? Does, does the left need to re reform itself as well as the right in America? I think the answer to that is there are dimensions of American progressive diversity progressive progressivism. So let me say that again. There are dimensions of American diversity progressivism, which I have strong disagreements with. Uh, uh, I'm I'm interested in uh, constructive conversation, but I think a diverse democracy needs a theory of identity, and I don't think a theory of identity is. I don't think you can consistently assign your favorite politics to your preferred groups. You can't say this group of people based on uh, certain physical characteristics, they will all, they, here's the kind of aesthetics they have. Here's the kind of experiences they all have. Here's the kind, here's the way they all interpret those experiences, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what I call the Russian nesting dolls model of identity. And that's just not how most people understand their own lives. I'm also not a big fan of constantly looking at identity as uh, oppressor versus oppressed. I think 
identity is principally about being proud of who you are, seeking to make a contribution to the greater whole out of your racial, your ethnic, your religious, your gender, your sexuality identity, and cooperating across difference. And so it's very much kind of an Obama approach to the world. Uh, we respect diff different identities. We relate positively across difference. We cooperate for a common life together. That's that's the approach that that I'm most interested in. What do you think of Biden? In my my sense, his sort of general feebleness on every front. Does he reflect, uh, in some ways, as much of a crisis in America as Trump? Um, not at all. I mean, J Joe Biden is a uh, is a not only a very decent man, but he is somebody. Well, who no one's doubting that you can be feeble and decent at the same time. Yeah, but you just compared him to Trump. Uh, uh, no, I didn't. I, I didn't compare him to Trump. I said that his general feebleness reflects, in some ways, as much a crisis in in the in, in the political culture of America that, as as Trump on the right, but they're not the same. So. Joe Biden is a center-left politician. He always has been at a time uh, when the energy is at the extremes. Now, what's interesting is the, the, we're talking about the energy of the chattering classes, right? We're talking about you know maybe seven, eight, nine percent of people on the left and maybe 15 percent of people on the right. This is according to the more uncommon report. But those two groups dominate the kind of political conversation. Now, it's interesting, uh, on the left, that group does not dominate voting, right? Because there's just lots and lots of people who are much more attracted to the general moderation, the very clear decency, the center-left approach of a Joe Biden, including African-Americans in the South, who are basically the people who uh, who put him over the top in the, in the Democratic primary and helped him win the race. And so I think that we... We live in a nation where most people recognize decency, where most people are temperamentally moderate, uh, but we don't live in a cultural and political conversation that that recognizes that fact amongst the vast majority of the American public. Yeah, I'm, I'm not entirely clear what you're saying, and I'm not sure if I do understand it that I, I agree. I, I was just in um, Munich at the weekend. I had breakfast with uh, um, with Moises Naim, the political thinker, been on my show a couple of times talking about power. He said to me, Trump is going to get reelected in 2024. I tend to agree with him. What happens if he is elected, Ibu? It certainly doesn't reflect an America that you're describing. It does of, not. Of made up of people who are generally tolerant. Yeah. Um, I don't know. In all honesty, I don't know. Um, I think that I'm, I'm very much hope that the cultural and political winds shift and a figure like an Obama figure rises again. Uh, now you're I, beginning to sound like, you know, uh, sorry, I, that was the wrong. <laughs> now you're beginning to sound like a, uh, a, a, a hopefully religious figure because you're not going to have Obama rising again. It's just not going to happen. The country, the country is, they had Obama 
and they're ambivalent about him. But certainly, there's the, the, the conditions are not right in any way for another Obama. I, I, I'm, I'm, I wish you were right, but I don't see any evidence of that. Yeah, so I, I hear you, Andrew. And let me, I'm going to remind you that Barack Obama lost the congressional race by 30 points in the year 2000. And three years later, he was the nominee for the Democrat for uh, um, for the Democratic seat for the Senate in Illinois. He wins in 2004, and he's president four years later. The point that I'm making is not this is not a savior uh, uh, position that I'm talking about, right? It is it is that America doesn't descend back into the just absolute incompetence and poisonous hatefulness that was Mark, that that was the quintessential feature of the Trump years, right? And so I think that maybe you don't have an Obama figure, but that you have other figures who project decency, moderation, and competence, which is what Joe Biden projects, decency, moderation, and competence. I'm not sure Biden is in the best position to, to run again. That's, you know, I don't make those decisions. Uh, um, but there's plenty of people in the Democratic world, uh, a Pete Buttigieg, for example, who project the same thing, moderation, decency, competence. We don't see Vice President Harris very much, but she would she generally projects the same kind of thing. And I have to say that, you know, I'm not a particularly partisan person. Uh, um, I think that there's Republican. Well, you are. I mean, you, you're you're clearly politically a progressive. You're on the left. I would say I'm center left, but I, you know, in the in the Bush White House, when they called, uh, we worked with them. Uh, um, so I believe in American pluralism, and I believe in working with decent people across the divide. Uh, Ibo, I I wrote something last week about the only my argument is the only way that america could be stitched back together using that language is through national service forcing people of very different backgrounds to talk to one another again i'm not sure what you think of national service it seems to be doable and i'm always disappointed that no politicians pick it up is there anything that we can work on in the next year or two to begin this process in political terms i mean what you're I doing um what you're doing uh, at Interfaith America is very good. What Monica is doing at Braver Angels is very good. Many other people. But what needs to happen? What can happen in the next couple of years to, 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 to build America for a diverse democracy? What would you yep. like to see? A couple of things that are, are concrete and doable. I appreciate that. So one is I think our metaphor needs to improve. I think that we are Interfaith America, not Judeo-Christian America. The nation needs to recognize and welcome the true diversity of its religious identities. That's number one. Number two, we are not a melting pot. We don't want to melt people's identities down into some common goo. We're a potluck. We welcome the contributions of diverse identities. So I think the metaphor needs to change. That's number one. Number two, uh, I do think that there are things we can do in the political level. There's lots of smart people talking about ranked choice voting, for example. My organization has been working with Representative Derek Kilmer, who's a D, and Representative Andy Barr, who's an R, on something called the Civic Bridges Act, which is precisely what you're talking about, Andrew. It is uh, um, the idea of of, bil of building a civic bridge building capacity within America's existing national service infrastructure, which is AmeriCorps. So that is something that can the federal government can work on that I think strengthens the nation. And the third thing is, I think we need a social change culture that is 
not so committed to a ferocious revolution and much more committed to a beautiful social order. We need a lot more Jane Adams. We need people who are able to build and run effective, inclusive institutions. The late 19th century was a really tough time in the United States, as it was in England and elsewhere, right? The Industrial Revolution, revolution taking off and melting the old ways. And you had this set of social reformers who didn't just tell other people what to do. They weren't just denouncing other people as doing things wrong. They were building better institutions. That's what Jane Addams did just 12 blocks from where I sit in Chicago. That's what we need a social change culture to be about. We defeat the things we do not love by building the things we do. It's interesting you bring up Jane Addams. She was also a progressive figure. I mean, she was very much opposed to American entry in the First World War. We did a show with Neil Langtop, the historian. Do you think that America needs to, if not withdraw from the world, focus on its own problems uh, rather than fighting these endless wars that um, uh, Phil Clay wrote about, uh, what he calls our age of endless invisible war? Is that one of the things that has caused this crisis? You know, I'm not really an international relations person or a foreign affairs person. Uh, um, I, you know, I want the United States to make its rightful contributions to a peaceful and prosperous world. I will say this, I imagine that the Ukrainians uh, are very happy that the United States uh, is positively and proactively engaged in supporting a democracy there. And that is both our diplomats and our military. So there are times when the United States gets this wrong. And I think that right now we are, we are when it comes to Ukraine, we are getting it right. Yeah, I agree with you on that one. Well, We Need to Build, Field Notes for Diverse Democracy um, is an important new book by Ibu Patel, who's an important thinker, activist in uh, in America, not just in Chicago. Congratulations, Ibu, on the new book. It's just out. Um, what else should people be reading? What else are you reading these days? What other books are keeping you, uh, keeping you focused, stimulating new ideas and thoughts? Yeah, so I'm going to give you uh, – uh, so, you know, I really like Yasha Monk's uh, I loved Yasha Monk's book, uh, um, The Great Experiment. I've been All reading right. Sokiyama's book also. Uh, you know, I, I think that strengthening liberal democracy is super important. I'm going to give you a handful of others. So my friend John Anazu has got a great book called Confident Pluralism, which is from a bit of a right-of-center perspective, an evangelical perspective on strengthening pluralism. Robbie Jones has an important book called The End of White Christian America, which is not as foreboding as it sounds, but it's about important demographic shifts taking place on the American religious landscape. Uh, um, Valerie Kaur, my friend, a Sikh American activist, has a book called See No Stranger, which is how progressive activists have to be loving and inclusive, not angry and exclusive. And I'll give you maybe uh, my kind of touchstone book in all of this, which is uh, The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin. And I'll just summarize very quickly. The Fire Next Time is about understanding somebody's anger, which is what Baldwin does with Elijah Muhammad here in Chicago in the early 1960s, but not wanting to live in that person's world. And Baldwin comes to dinner with Elijah Muhammad in the, 19, in the early 1960s because he understands where Elijah Muhammad's rage comes from. But as he's there over the course of this dinner and talking about, you know, a, 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 a separatist black society and in a, in a, harshly gender segregated space where 
it's kind of a cult-like setting. Baldwin thinks to himself, this is, this is not the world I want to live in. Okay, so what do I do? And he has the great line, we need to achieve our country. We need to achieve our country. He believed in American ideals, and he wanted to strengthen American institutions, and that's what I want to do also.